If you're tuning in for the first time, we are, as a church, little lights all over the valley, going through the book of Psalms. And we are looking at how the Psalms really address the human emotion. So there's like heart people, there's head people. The Psalms, they hit both. Well, they're very emotional. They um, are people that are real and raw, but they're theologically incredible as well. So been super fun for me. We're gonna be in Psalm 73. So I hope you have a Bible and you're opened up to Psalm 73. Look how this Psalm opens. You've probably heard this verse before. Psalm 73, one. Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. How many of us have quoted that? God is good. And then we reply all the time, okay, from this verse right here. We're like, yeah, what a great verse. Truly, God's good. All right. But you got to read verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. God, you're good, but, and he's gonna go off. God, you're good. However, it reminds me sometimes of what happens to me. People will say, hey, Matt, I want to have a meeting with you. And typically that means there's something I'm doing that they don't approve of or they want me to change or there's some correction. So we'll set the meeting up and we'll sit down and without fail, the meeting will begin with, hey, before I get to what I want to say, I just want to tell you I really appreciate your teaching. But, and then I'm like, I flinch now like, oh, it's coming I'm gonna get slammed right now. It's like the optimism sandwich, right? Compliment, tear someone down, then compliment when you leave. It's kind of like, a little bit like that. Like, hey God, I know you're good, but, but I got some problems right here. So the background on this psalm is pretty cool. The guy that wrote it, his name is Asaph. He's the praise leader for King David and King Solomon. He's big time like two of the greatest kings in Israel's history, he's their main dude. He's the praise leader. But it appears that Asaph has some time off. Maybe it's a sabbatical. I don't know what the deal is. But when he has some time off, he's away from his praise leading duties and he kind of goes off by himself for a while. And when he's out by himself, culture starts to do what culture does and culture is so strong. Like what we tune into and what we are listening to, it will begin to infect your soul. I'll give an example. We're probably all watching a lot of news right now. Buy stock in news companies because they're killing it right now. Here's the thing with 24-hour news today. You're never going to tune into the news and you're never going to hear them say, hey, you know what? Today was a pretty good day. So I'm just gonna sign off and we're gonna 
play reruns of Leave it to Beaver. That's just not gonna happen. They have to be manufacturing almost something sensational and awe and woo. I'm saying to be informed, no doubt, but also be careful. Be careful of how much you allow yourself to be influenced by the voice of culture and the voice of what's outside. So Asaph, he's away from his duties. He's out, and when he's out, he says, I started to slip. I started to stumble. And he tells us, number one, here's his problem. Here's the problem Asaph had. Verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs unto death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So when he's out, when he's away, he begins to look at wicked, arrogant people. And what he sees is this. They have it super easy. They're the beautiful people, right? This term, fat and sleek, 3,000 years ago, that was the ideal body. You're fat and sleek. So 3,000 years ago, culture said we want the ideal image to be fat, sleek people. Please know that beauty is so cultural that it just changes, changes with time and changes where you're at. I'll give you one example, maybe more. So I was a missionary in Vanuatu for a year and our island, Espirito Santo, was the main island in the area and there was a neighboring island called Malakula. And the people in Vanuatu are Melanesian. So they had these beautiful teeth, like they're just white and perfect and straight, just beautiful teeth, except for the women of Malakula. And it began to kind of like stand out, like you could tell instantly the women who are from Malakula because they'd be like missing one or two teeth in the front. So I asked one time, like, what's the deal with the women from Malakula and their teeth? And so the students told me, oh, on Malakula, if a husband is really pleased with his wife, he removes one of their front teeth because that's beauty to them. So like missing a tooth in front was like, you are a throw down woman. Okay, that's very different than us. But before we judge them, they would look at us with our pierced elbows and tattoos and grills and gold teeth and be like, you guys are crazy, right? It's cultural. I have an article at home. It's a, it was on a tribe in Saudi Arabia and it was a rich young bachelor. He was like the most eligible bachelor of Saudi Arabia or whatever. And they asked him, what's your, what, you're looking for a wife, what do you want? He said this, and I quote, she has to be at least 200 pounds. Anything less is sickly skinny. That's currently in Saudi Arabia, right? That, that would change how a bride prepares for her wedding, isn't it, right? I'm not going to the gym, I'm going to 31 flavors. My diet is French fries and DQ blizzards because I gotta hit 200. But that's just, it's cultural. Even in the United States in the past 20 years, image has changed. So 20 years ago, it was the Calvin Klein hyper skinny girl. Like they called them heroin girls because they look like drug addicts. They were that skinny. Well, now today, the ideal woman is thick. T-H-I-C-C, -C, right? It's a fuller body. That's just 20 years. So beauty is cultural. I'll tell you something that never goes out of style. Love. 
joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, always attractive no matter what the age is. So Asaph, he's looking at the people all around him and he just sees you're wicked and you're arrogant, but you're the beautiful, popular people of my culture. Then verse five, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Not only are they the beautiful people, it's like they have no problems at all. It's like he's looking at someone's Instagram page right now, a curated image. Kids are all perfect. Yes, mother. House is immaculate. Husband, wife is a 10. Cars are beautiful and shiny. Clothes are perfect. It's like the curated image he is getting from these people is, oh, look, they have it so easy. They're beautiful. They have no problems, no issues. And it keeps going. Therefore, pride, verse six, is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. There are these people, beautiful, sleek, no problems at all, pampered lifestyles, but eventually, he says this, their mouths get them into trouble. They start to say things they shouldn't say. So if you look at really, really famous people, eventually they say something stupid. Because really famous people are so used to likes and approval from the masses that they begin to believe that they are a genius and whatever they say will get likes and approvals. I'll give you an example just this week. Woody Allen came out with his memoir. Um, the Washington Post, I read an article on it. And the Washington Post, the title of the article was this, Woody Allen's disgusting tone-deaf memoir. And just begin to list the stuff that he was like, ah, this is cool, this is what I did. Like the falling in love with his 19-year-old stepdaughter and then marrying her, who was 30 years his junior. And he's like, oh yeah, we just couldn't keep our hands off each other, we were in love. And it's just like, are you kidding? Normal people find that appalling. But because you're a genius, you just think, oh, everyone thinks this way. Their mouths will get them in trouble. Then verse 10, he says this. Therefore, his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. Like, it's almost like this. Like, why are we listening to these people? Why do we not find fault in them? Don't you know, like, their job is... Uh, whatever, an Instagram influencer to, they get paid to try to sell you to do this stuff or to eat this stuff or wear that, right? Or news people that ask celebrities questions that are way outside their, their realm. Like, why do we care about her opinion, his opinion on that? My favorite was Brad Pitt did this movie about Tibet. And so he was in an interview and the interviewer said, hey, do you think Tibet should still be under China rule? And his response was this, why are you asking me that? I'm not a politician, I have no idea. I mean, th th this is dumb, I'm just an actor, that's all I am. I was like, thank you, th th that's right. Most actors though will give their two cents 
then it's all it's worth. At least Brad Pitt was like, I don't even matter. So why do we listen to them? And then lastly, as he looks at this problems that, that he's seen in culture, verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. These godless, I was out on sabbatical and I saw these godless, wicked, arrogant, foul-mouthed people making bank, vacationing in Bali, Benny's falling out of their back pocket. It just didn't seem right to me. How modern is this psalm? Like, this works, okay? So that's his problem. He just sees this whole thing. These guys are wicked and arrogant, foul-mouthed people, and they're hyper-successful. So now his complaint, he puts it real simple in verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. God, I'm trying to be right. I'm trying to do the good thing. I'm trying to live in a way that's godly and correct. And my reward is I'm stricken. People make fun of me. I get rebuked. How can you believe that? Oh, really? Right? My life stinks. It's hard. I'm working. I'm trying. I'm attempting while these rich people do nothing and they're successful. Listen to me for a second. Asaph's a praise leader. He's involved. And, and I'll say this. The more disciplined you are, the more you sacrifice of yourself, the more you deny your own desires and work for other people, the more you read your Bible, the more you pray, the more you try to keep your hands clean and do what's right, the more likely you'll end up like Asaph. Like, God, look at everything that I'm doing. And look how bad those guys are. And this is disappointing to me. You're unjust in this, God. That This isn't right. This should be reversed. Because the guy that's fornicating and lazy and doing drugs, he's not surprised when life is bad. He's like, I kind of deserve that. But it's the disciplined, sacrificing, hardworking person like Asaph that says, this is wrong. Here's why. Fundamental to all how, how all humans work. It's Genesis chapter two. It's called the covenant of works. I've mentioned it many times. It's how we actually live every day where God says, do this and live. And we still believe the covenant of works works today. If I'll just do these things, life will work out right for me. If I keep my heart clean, if I wash my hands in innocence, if I'm disciplined, if I do all this stuff, God, then I'll get this kind of a life. And then when we don't get it, we become like Asaph. God, I know you're good, but really? This doesn't make sense. God, come on. I should be the fat, sleek guy with Benny's falling out of my pocket, vacationing in Bali, but it's them. 
The truth is we don't live in Genesis 2 anymore. Genesis 3 changed everything. And Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11 says, the race doesn't go to the swift anymore. It's backwards, it's messed up, it's, it just doesn't work anymore. But we still, deep in our DNA, believe covenant of works, do this and live. And that's Asaph's big struggle. So his complaint, God, I live right and I'm stricken and rebuked. They live terrible and they get everything that they could ever possibly want and more. And then we get his fear. It's an interesting fear from a praise leader. Verse 14, for all the day long, excuse me, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the children of this generation. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. This is what Asaph has just said. I wanted to vent somewhere. I wanted to vent all this to somebody. Say, this is unfair. I don't know what God's doing. It seems like injustice. God doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. I wanted somewhere to vent, but I knew I'd stumble people if I started talking. I'm a praise leader. I'm in an important position. So I had to just keep quiet. I had to keep quiet because I didn't want to stumble people. There's been a rash of praise leaders that have walked away from their faith recently if you've watched this. I wonder if it's like Asaph, where they're in a community where they do not feel comfortable sharing their doubts, their discouragement. Their, they have to get up on stage and smile all the time and be like, hey, everything's great, awesome, praise God, God is good. And they never get to verse two, but, because they wonder and worry about the same exact thing. That the church can be a place sometimes where we don't welcome doubt, where we say, man, we believe in here, we're about faith in here. And so then it makes people uncomfortable sharing doubt or worry. So if you're old Apple, Applegate, if you're old Edgewater, <laughs> um, 10 years ago, I did a study, and I just called it doubts, not a dirty word, that it actually creates the antibodies of faith that move us forward. And I tried to be really honest and raw in those teachings. And after one where I'd shared my own testimony, my own like journey through doubt, and I'd use John the Baptist as an example from Matthew 11 that he went through some serious doubt about who Jesus is because he was in prison. He's like, wait a second, this isn't how things are supposed to work out. I'm on your team, Jesus, I shouldn't be in prison. So shared that. When I got done, this lady grabbed me in the hallway outside of Fruitdale. Um, and, and I'm standing there and she's like, you should not have taught that today. I said, well, you know, I'm just trying to be honest. You have to go up there and you have to just believe. I said, lady, it's that attitude that did not help me when I was in church as a college student. That was exactly the attitude that hurt me. I need somebody to walk with me through my doubt. She said, well, John the Baptist never doubted. He always believed Jesus. I said, read Matthew 11, he did. And then she said this, and I hadn't gone to seminary yet. She said, my husband has a doctorate from seminary. I have a master's degree. Do you have a degree? I said, lady, I'm running about 104 right now, okay? I have a degree, all right? A couple of them. She said, well, I cannot come back to this church. I said, praise the Lord. Let me recommend one for you. It's that attitude. 
that Asaph is feeling. And he's like, where do I take this? Where can I go with this? I've got these doubts. I've watched this thing that doesn't seem right. Where do I go? I've been on sabbatical. Cultures got into me. So where do you go? Verse 17, brilliant, his help. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He goes back to church. Ah, that's the answer. Yes, his, his sabbatical is over. He's back in the rhythm of leading praise in the temple. He's back in the rhythm of the way things are supposed to be. And then he's like, oh, oh. Why do you go to church? Good question to ask yourself. Why do you go to church? Some people go to church because they say, well, I want to feel better. I say to those kind of people, let me give you a shortcut. If you just want to feel better, grab a glass of wine and watch some Netflix. That's a better way to feel better, right? If you come to church to feel better, hey, that's what church is about, right? A quicker way is four glasses of wine, you'll probably feel better. Maybe not in the morning, but in the moment you will. Here's what church is. Church is our reality check. So he comes to the sanctuary with his doubt and his trouble, and he's just disappointing with God. And then it says he discerned. The Hebrew there is pay attention, learned, studied. It's I came and scripture was open and a reality check was given, right? I didn't come to escape from all my troubles. I came to learn the actual way the world works. I love that. And here is his reality check. This is what he gets when he's in church. Check this out. Number one, verse 18. Truly, you set them in a slippery place. Remember, he began it by saying, hey, I'm slipping. Now, he has an about face. Actually, I'm on pretty solid ground right now. They're the ones that are slipping. You how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terror. He has this about face. And I thought I was on slippery ground. When I looked at them and looked at what was happening, actually, they're the ones that are gonna slip. Because whatever they've invested in, beauty, does beauty last? Mm -mm. Like it's almost a, uh, maybe it's a, a cosmic Irony, the only two parts on a human body that keep growing is the nose and your ears. So at the end of life, everyone looks like a clown. Giant nose, giant ears. And then we die and we get painted up like a clown, put in a box and put into the ground. Beauty fades at some point. It will not last. They're in a very slippery place, right? Physique, sleek bodies, right? You got a six pack of abs, great. A week off, a week getting sick, and a gallon of Lucerne Rocky Road ice cream, you have an ab. It's not going to last, right? Your career. Eventually, all of us will be replaced by a robot if Jesus does not tarry. That's coming for every single person, right? Your star, man, I'm an Instagram influencer. Yeah, you know how long that lasts? Good luck, man. It'll fade as well. So what he knows is he does this about face because of scripture, Wait a second. 
They're actually the ones with the way that they're living and what they're prioritizing. They're on slippery slopes. Oh, he doesn't about face. Then number two, verse 20, the alarm goes off. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Like the alarm goes off. And it's, it's this moment where he has an epiphany. Have you ever had that in church? Man, my journals are full of moments where maybe I came in like Asaph and culture has this hold on me and this grip on me and it's discouraging me and it's grinding me up. And then all of a sudden, God's word is taught in such a way that I say, oh man, that changes everything. You become woke in the best sense of the word. And how you lived and what you thought when you came into the sanctuary now seems like a dream. I was just dreaming then. Oh, wow. It's why the church for 2,000 years has gathered together. Because when you get saved, it's not go off by yourself. When you get saved, it's come around people that will help you and walk with you in the sanctuary so you understand reality. So you get woke up from the dreams that we live about life. Then thirdly, he gets this mirror of scripture. When my soul was embittered, that was verses two down through verse 16. When I was pricked in my heart, verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Scripture begins to bear in on him and reflected back on how he was viewing God. He's like, oh, I was a beast. Why would he say that? If you look at verse three, it says this, when he's outside, when he's on his sabbatical, he looks and he says, I became envious of these guys. I wanted what they had, right? He is angry at God. Here's why he's angry at God. God, you are allowing the wicked to prosper. You are allowing them to get all this stuff and I don't have any of it. And I really want some of it. I want some of what they have. He started to slip when he became envious of them. And he's like, God, you should give me the same stuff they have. I want their comfort. I want their cash. I want their recognition. And he goes, oh, as a beast. Why was I wanting that life? We'll find out. He ends up with a much better perspective. Okay? That's what scripture is supposed to do. The Bible says all things are naked and open before him whom we have the deal. The Bible says this word is like a sword, quick and powerful. It discerns, it cuts. And we make this mistake about God at times. Like we think, we think that God should be understandable to us. His ways, what he's doing. I mean, really? It's like this maybe. And I shared this a month ago on a Wednesday night. We found this little gosling named Lucy. Well, it got named Lucy. It was hurt, injured, abandoned. Long story, put it in this cage where we're raising chickens. And Lucy did not like that. She would bite me. I'd have to force feed her with a dropper. She's always squawking, biting. She's always trying to get out of the cage. She hated it. So finally, one time I just said, what's she gonna do if I let her out? And she just ran off and she's gonna get killed by a coyote. So I grab her, I put her back in the cage. Hates it, biting me, squawking, angry. And then one day I come down there to feed her and she can't walk anymore. She can't stand up. She's just on her side. Every time I get her to stand up, she falls over to the other side. So I go up and I Google, like, what is this? 
And the answer Google gave was, you have to put her to death because well, she's not gonna get better. This is a disease. This is something that happens to geese. You have to just kill her. I'm like, ah, Myron will hate that. Myron loved Lucy. I'm like, I can't do that. So I thought, here's what I'll do. I made this, took this old t-shirt and I cut these holes in the bottom of it and I put Lucy's feet through it and she's biting me and squawking and just angry. She's just this little thing. Put her feet through it and I took the t-shirt and put a hole for her head out of it as well and then I hung it up on this tripod where just her feet would touch but she couldn't sit down. And so she's just mad at me so she's like running around in circles trying to get away and I left her that way for about four days. And then I took her out of it. She's biting me and squawking and angry. I took her out of the t-shirt. I let her go and she runs off. I'm like, you're mad at me, but you're walking and alive. I think sometimes we're beastly like Lucy. Like, God, what are you doing to me? Why am I in this confinement? Why is this happening to me? And we're biting and squawking at God like, like Asaph's doing right here. And all the time God is like, oh, if you only knew, Matt. Only if you only knew. I want you to fly. And without this, you'll never fly. We're supposed to allow God's word to have a reality check. And we can act very brutishly towards God sometimes. Like Asaph is saying, man, I did that. I was a brute towards God. If God is all powerful, and he is, and he's all knowing, and he is, don't you think there'll be times that you don't understand what God is doing? Like me and Lucy. Lucy didn't understand me because I knew a lot more. But the distance between us and God is way greater than me and Lucy. It's like a bacteria trying to understand quantum physics. You're gonna be confused. Like never be confused or never be confounded that you're confused by God because he's all powerful. He's all knowing. That's gonna happen. And so Asaph is like, oh, right. I was acting like a beast. And then lastly, he looks up. Verse 23 Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. I love that. Right? He's had all these bad thoughts about God. God, you're just not doing this right. You don't run the universe right. Why don't I get all this stuff? I don't get all the stuff I want. And then he finally realizes, even though I was acting like a beast toward God, God was still with me. He didn't cast me off. He's the faithful one. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. God, I need to get into your counsel. I've been listening to culture's counsel so much, I was slipping in astray. I gotta get back to your counsel. Keep my eyes fixed upon you. And verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And here's the key. And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. How, how'd the chapter begin? Man, I want all the stuff those guys have. I want their sleek bodies. I want their money. I want their clothes. I want their houses. I want, that's what I want. He was mad at God because he wanted their junk more than he wanted God. And now he comes to the realization, oh, I actually need is God. Augustine put it like this. He said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. That you and I were created with a capacity that's way too large 
for a car ever to fill or a house ever to fill or Instagram likes to ever fill. It will never be enough because our capacity can only be filled by God. And once you find your rest in God, you get to enjoy everything else because you're not putting so much pressure on it. You enjoy your marriage, you enjoy your husband, you enjoy your spouse, you enjoy your kids, you enjoy your job. Why? Because you're not trying to make it your life. Christ is your life. And your heart is at rest. You have a shalom. And so he comes back to that. God, I was slipping because I wanted something so finite and small more than I wanted you. This is Psalm 73. It's brilliant. Slipping, doubting, discouragement. And then he comes back around into the sanctuary and he starts to realize, gets a reality check, right? And the whole time God's like, I've been here for you. Like, I love that in this chapter. Even though he's brutish and beastly and just totally amiss in his theology, God didn't cast him off. And so the Psalm ends, verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. What a great statement. I got a little away. I was out over here. Oh, I need to be close to God. So I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all his works. I love the fact that God welcomes us back home even when we act brutish, beastly, even when our minds are totally doubting and thinking wrong theology. God says, you can come back. You can come back. You can go prodigal. And God says, you can come back. So I don't know who's watching this right now. It might be my family and that's it. Hi, sweetie. But if you feel like, I've kind of done an Asaph. I got away from God. And culture is beginning to change the way I think. And, and then the enemy wants to start lying to you and saying, yeah, God's disappointed in you. You can't go back. He's mad at you. Nothing can be further from the truth. Read the prodigal son, Luke 15. The father with wide open arms wraps up that stinky son and says, throw a party. Throw a party. You can come back anytime you want. His arms are wide open for his kids. You can come back. And maybe the best way of coming back is taking communion. That you realize the gift that's been given to us, the unspeakable gift of the life of God Almighty for me. Luther called it the great exchange, his life for mine. So grab communion, we're gonna pray and we'll take it together. So Jesus, thank you for men like Asaph, who so eloquently and brilliantly described the common struggle that we go through or we can look at other people's lives and think they haven't made or we're slipping and stumbling when the truth is they're slipping and stumbling. That we have had the opportunity to have our feet firmly planted on the solid rock of salvation by grace through faith alone. That we are your kids that you are alive, that your arms are wide open for us. That's the solid rock. 
So for those that have strayed today, I pray that they would return. For those who have doubts and questions, may they know that the sanctuary is the safest place for them. That's where you bring them. That God isn't afraid of my doubt. Just like Asaph. And may we get the reality check that we need. Waking up, having the mirror of scripture, alarms going off, looking back up to where our help comes from. You, the faithful one who loves us so much. So may Psalm 73 sink into the soil of our hearts today and produce good fruit. We ask this in your name, amen. So grab communion if you can. Thank you. You may not have had time to get it, but I could sing for you, but you would not like that. So we're gonna jump into communion. My hope is you hold these elements that it would remind you of the greatness of God's love for us. That he is not like we are. Where we have like this certain amount that we'll give people. We'll give Asaph two or three verses, but man, if you keep going like this, we're gonna cut you off. He doesn't have a certain amount. His love is unfathomable. His grace is unreal. So Spurgeon was once asked, like, don't you run out of grace? And his answer was, you fool. You can no more run out of grace than a minnow can drink the ocean. That's what this tells us. So today, as Edgewater gathers throughout Southern Oregon, or wherever we're tuned in. As we partake in remembrance of the great work you've done for us, eating, I pray that you would feed souls today. I pray for those that need a wake-up call, an alarm to go off. I pray that the alarm would be your love, that it'd be the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. For those that need to be doing about face, thinking they've got it made and I've got it hard. Lord, I pray today you'd reveal, no, actually we've got it made. That the worst day on earth has nothing to the great glory that's gonna be revealed in us through eternity. Has nothing. Can't even be compared. Second Corinthians 4, 17. So may we eat of you today. As we take the cup, may we be reminded that we can ask you to create in us clean hearts and renew in us right spirits. That when we're feeling like Asaph, 
culture has captured us. That you have the ability to change our hearts, to renew right spirits, to transform us, to help us to see clearly. So as we drink today as a body, I would ask that you would be filling us with the understanding that not only are we white as snow in your eyes, but we can be being made white as snow presently, that you cleanse us, creating clean hearts, right spirits, right perspectives in us. So we drink of that cleansing work. So go with us, Lord. Whatever this week holds, may we be a people that allow the sanctuary, wherever that might be, this week, this month, the sanctuary to wake us up and engage us and to give us the right view of reality. May we be a people that this week spend time in the mirror of Scripture being reformed and remade by its power. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.